Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Zane Lowe. Thanks for joining us for another conversation right here on the interview series. They're stacking up. We're into our 40s now, which is good because I needed all that experience to be able to properly conduct the kind of conversation you need to prepare for with a legend like Barry Gibb, the last remaining member of the Bee Gees, a musical powerhouse who gave us so many hit songs, not just under their own name or with their brother Andy, but also for so many other artists, songs you're still discovering today that are just a part of the DNA, the human experience that you find out far too far down the line were written by the Bee Gees. But that history is quickly unfolding now thanks to a brilliant documentary which came out at the end of 2020. It really was a Christmas treat and I, like many other people I know personally, watched it and was just stunned by the journey that the band had been on long before they really hit their stride in the 70s as part of the whole pop disco movement. They were already a massive arena and stadium filling act and they continued to be that until the sad passing of Andy, then brothers Morris and Robin, which now leaves Barry to carry the legacy of this band on into the future. And he's done so beautifully with a fantastic album of Bee Gees classics, re-recorded in collaboration and duet form with some of country music's biggest superstars. This wonderful album starts to finish. It really is. And it puts a real spotlight on the quality of the songs away from the quality of the production. You know, what really came across in this conversation was the humility that Barry Gibbs showed despite his enormous success. He is the second most successful songwriter in the history of modern music behind Paul McCartney and John Lennon. But that fact doesn't really land for him. What does is the bittersweet truth that he'll no longer be able to write, record, and perform with his brothers as the Bee Gees. That really is a thread that flows through the entire conversation, and it was a beautiful one. I hope you enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, the incomparable Barry Gibb. Oh, look at that. Behind the console where you spent so much of your life giving us gifts of joy. <laughs> that must be one of the most comfortable places in the world for you is just nestling into that tool that has allowed to, you, you to express yourself so much, you know? It is. It, it, it's, it's, well, it's at home, you know? And that's, that's, that's special. But um, there's nothing like being at the RCA studios, that's for sure. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. What a beautiful, beautiful album it is. Um, and no small feat to be able to take songs that are so well loved and, and so omnipresent in people's lives and to breathe new life into them with collaborators, many of which I'm sure you've never shared a microphone before with. So a lot of news, a lot of firsts here, Barry. That's true. Um, Jason Isbell, Jay Buchanan, Gillian uh, Welch and Dave, uh, and Dave Rawlings. Um, I just fell in love with them after watching Down from the Mountain. I don't know if you've seen that, but it just shook me up. Uh, it's, I highly recommend it. It's the soundtrack from Brother Where Art Thou. Oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course. I love that film. I love that soundtrack. I've made the connection, most definitely. Um, what really struck me about this album, beyond how great it is to listen to, um, is that it, it's, it's a, coming home, a coming home story. That's what it is for you. It's coming back to somewhere that you felt... Um, inspired you in the first place, this music that really captured your imagination early on. It must have feel, felt great to get back to that place. It was. It was wonderful. And Dave Cobb was brilliant. And, and I didn't want to produce this record. I, 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 did, I just wanted to focus on performance and working with Dolly and Allison and all these people. Uh, as such a special experience um, that it was a thrill. I didn't have to be behind the board, you know. I'll leave that to the people now who are really brilliant and I've got to choose what I want, how I contribute. But it's like the old, it's like the 70s, you know, it's a great team. You're always, you've got to be a great team. Is it interesting hearing a producer like Dave Cobb 
working on songs that you produced and worked on and, 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 got, and got to a point where you love them and you're ready to release them, trying to recapture some of the, the lushness that you sort of invented in the first place. And he's done a great job of reinventing these, but you know what I mean? Like definitely in it, with the, in, on a song like, like Too Much Heaven, there's definitely Dave's, he's pressing the Bee Gees button. There's no question about it. Oh, I think he enjoyed doing that. And, and I didn't, I had no idea where we were going. And so that's, that's life, you know. I love not knowing where I'm going. And if you do everything moment to moment and you do the best you can, and you, you're always got to be a part of a great team. And I've always tried to do that, you know. This was different, but very special, very special. How has this, this sort of era of your life been where you spent so much time fulfilling that prophecy of not knowing where you're going? you know, going from one adventure to the next. And then sort of you, you've, you've raised a family, you've built a life around yourself and for yourself whilst being successful. That's not, that's, that's tricky too. But how has the last of 10 years of your life been as, as you sort of have found yourself in a place where you're able to kind of appreciate your roots and appreciate what you've built? Well, um, I, I spent at least a year or two after, after Rob passed um, not knowing where I was going and not knowing who I was and, and whether or not I could continue as an individual performer. And I, I just sat around for like a year in shock because my whole family was gone except for my sister in Australia, Leslie, and she's got eight children. So, you know, my family thrives still, but, but I've been married for 50 years and I, I couldn't be happier. She's just an incredible woman. She tolerates, it's a big family. She tolerates a lot but she takes care of all of us and, and that's a blessing. So, you know, yeah, it was quiet. It was quiet for a while. And then she walked into the lounge and said, get off your ass. You know, you, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, it's all really simple when you think about it. You know, well, can you elaborate a little bit because I've been married 21 years and I know that, um, you know, I, I, I can absolutely understand where you're coming from. We're very lucky, lucky people. Um, to have people in our lives who understand us and are willing to, yeah. to, 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 to say those things that we need to hear. What was she concerned about when she, when she approached you and, and what, what was on her mind? I think she knew that, 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 that I was pretty despondent at that point. And although I didn't really know it, I, I just didn't know what to do with myself. And I was still, maybe it's grieving, maybe it's something else, but uh, it took me at least a year to get past the sadness of all that, you know? Um, not an easy task. And, and, and then we lost mum. So, you know, it, it's, it's all really part of the course, isn't it? You know, except that you never expect when something like that can happen. And that's just what happened. It was very quiet for a while. And then I just decided to jump back in and do something. So I got to work with Ricky Skagg. I, I love Nash. I love country music and bluegrass music so much that I had to go to Nashville and be a nuisance. And I'm good at that. You know what, Nashville's not a place that you normally get to invite yourself to the wedding. There's, there's a gentleman, one of the great country artists, T.G. Shepherd, um, and Kelly, his wife, who introduced us to the people at the Grand Ole Opry. And they were very, very kind and generous because, you know, you do, it's not a situation you walk right into, you know? And you don't necessarily feel like you belong, and people don't necessarily treat you like you belong. That's something you have to come to terms with. And, and so I thought, well, I got to keep coming back because there's nothing like this. There's, you know, a, a city that just thrives on music. That's for me. 
<laughs> I was talking to Mara Morris yesterday about um, you know the idea of of, of what you know uh, the, the turn of phrase within a song that ultimately you know is the is the joy of the story, the narrative, uh, the heartache, yeah. the heartbreak, the villain, the good guy, who wins, who loses. All of these at the core of what makes you know, in particular, Nashville songwriting so unique because it's so driven by stories. You have been telling these stories your whole life. Um, were you always aware of the fact that that country music ran through your craft, or did it catch you by surprise too? Uh, it didn't catch me by surprise. I always felt like that because that was basically what's inside of me. I just wanted everything. There's a simplicity that comes with country music that also involves sophistication. So there's there's just two, numerous ways to look at it, but there's nothing like a great country song. There's, there's nothing more wonderful than romance in a song, uh, losing, winning. You're absolutely right. I miss those types of songs. You know, I, I miss the romanticism, the sentimentality, all that stuff. I think we all need a little bit of that. And when I listen to the album now, I hear lyrics that if you're stuck at home, you might want to you want you might want to send that message to someone. You know, words of a fool, words of a fool is perfect in that way. Too much heaven is perfect lyrically for that purpose. How can you mend a broken heart? My God, oh. you know how appropriate those lyrics really are, and you don't know until now. You know, I never thought those I never thought those songs counted in this era as much as they suddenly do all of a sudden. And I think that's all about the pandemic and how we all want to say things to each other. You know, what's great about songs is you don't have to tell people what you think. You can sing it. I didn't get away with it. That's true. There's a beautiful <laughs> song. That's true. Well, so almost. There's, I mean, there's a beautiful song by J.P. Sachs and Marin, who I was talking to about. That was about what it was about. And the, the idea being that I've, I've written this song to say the things that I don't know how to say as a normal person. And, and I spoke to Dolly, Dolly Parton before the end of the year, and she was saying that there were times that she would pick up her instrument and write songs because she felt she had to, but we didn't have to hear them. She chose to hold on to those and never release them. They were a personal process for her. You wrote and recorded some of the biggest songs in history. Are there songs we've never heard that just served a purpose for you? Yes. Yes, there are. <laughs> um, and I'll bring them to the fore if I get the opportunity to do that. There's a lot of records, songs we wrote in Australia that, that uh, where Butterfly comes from. That was written in 1966, you know. And uh, once I fell in love with Gillian and Dave Rawlings, Gillian Welsh and Dave Rawlings, I Singing with them was like singing with my brothers. And that was just a pure pleasure. Yeah. And that unlocked that for you. You started thinking, hmm, maybe there's a home for these songs. I never thought that way. I just, I'm just a pest. I, 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 I spoke with Jay Landers. My eldest son, Stephen, played me a Chris... Um, Stapleton. Chris Stapleton. And he, of course, he didn't do it because he was too busy. But... One day he might. Chris, what are you doing? Chris, I'm sorry, Chris. What are you doing? I mean, I think Chris Stapleton is one of the greatest artists of the modern age, but come on, bro. <laughs> what are you doing? No, I, I, you know, that really wasn't the vibe. You know, I didn't choose who sang what. I didn't ask anyone to sing a certain song. And that was the pleasure. I, they, they chose themselves, you know. And I couldn't be prouder that they said yes. Whoever said yes, that's amazing. Yeah, what a lineup. I look forward to more. I look forward to getting some of those songs out of the closet and getting the people I love. So there will be a part two, you think? There'll be a volume two. You're interested in continuing well, I, this series? You know, I hope so. I, I wouldn't have expected that 
if this record hadn't worked out. But it seems that everyone likes it. So, you know, geez. Yeah, it's going to be a number, it's going to be a number one record globally. I mean, it's fantastic. I don't know. Thank you for that. But, I, you know, my fingers are crossed. Everything's crossed. So I've never experienced this in my life 40 years later. Come on. Just never, never realized that people cared that much. You know, the 70s passed and Michael came along and life changed for everybody. The music changed and it always changes. You know, the system changes. So the record industry I came into is certainly more complex now than it ever was. So it's tough. It's crowded. It's crowded. Making it count is really important now, you know? It's also really interesting because as long as I've been talking to musicians, which is nearly 30 years now, you have such a unique relationship with your own song, something that we'll never understand as fans. Um, you know, we carry these songs around with us in our lives and apply them all the time, and we assume that you know that. But a lot of times you can actually have a distant relationship, right? You can, you can form a relationship with your songs that is almost um, acrimonious at times. Well, not acrimonious, but certainly distant. Like, you don't know what they mean. That's true. It's true. Um, I think I think that's a truism, and I think that um, there are songs that are extremely personal. How can you mend a broken heart? Is extremely personal. Um, there are songs in in my life that have always meant something to me at that moment. You know, I agree with you about Dolly. I, I mean, I I I I don't write songs because I love songs. I write songs because I have to write. Yeah, and you put it. That way. And I think that's really what happens. You just have to do it. And if you have an idea, you know, my ideas come when I'm asleep. So I wake up really? and record them as quickly as I can. Yeah. And that's, you say that like that's a common thing. Like I've heard that a few times in isolated situations, but it's a common, it's a common thing for you? It's a common thing for me. But fortunately now we have iPhones. And if I, if I wake up with an idea, I make sure it's recorded. And the next day it, it, it's crap. You know, <laughs> <laughs> here comes Barry with another another one of those shitty songs again that he dripped up last night. That's right, and you know, there's a whole bunch of songs that never made it. I'm telling you. Do you remember the dreams or just the songs? Do you remember? Do they come with dreams and visuals and environments? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? I really believe that that songs are not things you. If you're writing a song, it's something you have to see. It's not something you you hear. So there's always a vision that goes with a song. And sometimes it's personal and sometimes it's just uh, what, what I've learned from the Beatles, which is you can, you can write about anything, you know? If you can write Yellow Submarine, you can, you can have your own way no matter what. Okay, well, let's unpack that for a second because, because as <laughs> you bring up the Beatles for good reason. I mean, you know, you, you, keep, you keep company with them. I mean, along with the Beatles, you are, along with John Lennon and Paul McCartney, you're in the top three most successful songwriters in the history of, of music. <laughs> That's, <laughs> I, I just said that. It's amazing. Now, let's, like just, it. let's just talk. <laughs> now, you just, you, you, just, yeah, you just boiled that remarkable statistic down into a very, very simple idea, which is that you can write about anything. So how do you write about anything? Well, you did the paperback writer, you know. Um, Jesus, Day in the Life, um, Long and Winding Road, you know. They're not necessarily specific love songs, but, they're, but they're, the spectrum is enormous, you know. And I think that's what they were able to see, and that's visual, you know. There's a, there's a, there's a visual spectrum to every song, and that's, that's how I treat it, you know. It's, it, you have to see what the song is about and not just hear what the song is about. You said that Morris and Robin would love this, um, this album for different reasons. What, what are the, 
What, what would be the different reasons? How, how would their opinions and their feelings for this record change and be different to each other, do you think? I know that Morris would, be, would have been over the moon. Robin was more of a pop music, R&B type, Otis Redding type of fan. And so he loved that kind of music where Morris and I, we were the Everly Brothers, you know. And we, 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 didn't, we didn't mind sitting up at night and strumming. It wasn't Rob's thing. He just didn't like doing that. You know, Rob was the kind of guy that didn't even turn up at a sound check, you know. He would just run on the stage and do the best he could, but he didn't like sound checks. So Morris and I would always do that. But, you know, that just shows how different we all are. Andy's another one. Andy, Andy loves country music too. Andy and Morris absolutely love country music. Rob was just a, a different type of person. He just, he, just was, he just was into a different kind of music. And Robin sang the beat of his own drum. He didn't really, he didn't really sing because he was in a group. You know? It's so funny because when the Bee Gees first emerged, the way that Robin pre- presented himself was that he was the easygoing kind of malleable sort of pop star type figure. And yet, as, as we've learned in the documentary and going through life, he was the one who was the hardliner, right? He was the hardliner. Well, he was, you know, I think people mis- misunderstand that the competition between us didn't really begin when we were kids. It, it just didn't happen that way. It, 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 the happiest time of our lives was when, when we were not famous at all. You know, that, we, didn't, we didn't compete with each other. We loved being together. We loved being on the beach. We loved fishing at night in Australia. And life was very, very different. Once we hit it, once, once we became famous, that's when everybody wanted to be a front man, you know. But when you're, there's nothing, you know it, there's nothing more unnatural than a group. And there's nothing more competitive um, in a family. So you have, you have that too. And, and that was part of the battle, is getting along as brothers. Always, always a little difficult. But always when we, the, the, the good times were wonderful and the bad times were a little sad. But, yeah. you know, in life you get everything. Everybody gets everything at some point. If you're lucky enough, if you're lucky enough, you get to experience the whole thing, all the good and the bad. Yeah, but you're never going to get just good and you're never going to get just bad. Just keep doing your best. It's all you can do, you know. Do you think the band would, the band would have survived those tough times if, if, if you hadn't been brothers? No. No, because, um, because they were beginning to not get along. So it wasn't just the three brothers. And it, and, and it was a wonderful team, but everybody just sort of got tired. And... Uh, Albie, Albie Galutin and Carl Richardson, Albie wanted to live in California. He was going through his own issues with his wife and Carl really just didn't really want to be doing that anymore. And it, it was about five or six years, maybe seven years up to the Guilty album and Dionne Warwick and Diana Ross. And then, and then, then the rot set in. We got, everyone got really weary. And we didn't want to be in the studio 12 hours a day because that's what we've been doing, you know? And so that, everything changes. Everything, nothing lasts. And we all drifted off in some way or another. And I still talk. I have spoken to Albie recently and I've spoken to Carl recently because in times like this, the people you care about, you should tell them, oh, yeah. you know? So we get lazy about that in good times. Times like this, you've got to, you've got to call and say, you know, I, I, I love you and I hope we get to make another record someday. And that's, it didn't end with a laugh. 
but it's we're, st- we're still talking and we love each other and that's all there is to it. Do you speak to your brothers in some capacity? Are you able to form a connection with them and feel their spirit still in this day? I mean, like I say, I dream of them on, all the time and, and it's like real life. And when I wake up and they're not here and that doesn't go away and it can happen every couple of nights, you know, and it's always really happy. But I remember all, all the connecting emotions when that happens. I can see Robin and I talk to Morris and I talk to Robin and, and then I realize when I wake up that that's not real and, and I can't believe in the dream how happy we all were, you know. And I remember my emotions still being the same. Oh, Rob, I hope you're in a good mood today, you know. Or, oh, yeah, Rob's smiling, it's okay. <laughs> Everybody, we're, so, we're all so unpredictable, you know. Oh, family, you know, I, it's such a it's such a blessing that you were able to spend so much of it, even through those tough times. And, you know, you can't choose your brothers and your sisters, you know, you, you get what you get and, and we're all this makeup of, of DNA and idiosyncrasies and learnings and all these things that get thrown together into the life, into the life experience. But that somehow you were able to turn these moments, good, bad, positive, ugly into songs that changed the world. How, what has your relationship been like to the Bee Gees music to listen to as a fan, not as a creator? My joy comes from playing them live. You know, I don't necessarily listen to Bee Gees records from maybe 20 or 30 years ago. But when I, when I, when I know what I'm doing live, and I, can, I, don't, I don't sing songs that Robin sang because I think that's sacred. Mm. And Ormo... I only sing the songs that, that I came up with. I only sing the songs that I sang in the first place. And if I do a song like Run To Me, then the girls, they take Robin's part. But I will not sing where Robin sang. I just won't do it. You were such a weird band. In the beginning, because I've watched the documentary as well, and I'm very familiar with your older music in the early days because I got turned on to it in recent years. Like, you were a weird band. You went out to the UK. I mean, you had a few records coming out in Australia New Zealand, and then you went out to the UK, and you immersed yourself in this 60s psychedelia weirdness. And somehow you found success out of that. I mean, what do you put that down to? Because you listen to these records now, and they're crazy. Yeah, yeah, but listen, saying naivety is everything. You know, you, we, we were as naive as you could possibly be. We were suddenly signed to uh, NEMS, Brian Epstein and Robert Stigwood. And, and from there on, we were just floating. We were just going along with the time. I was, I remember being in an ele- elevator with Eric Clapton going up to the NEMS offices. And in those days, you could dress any way you wanted. It's different now, but you could dress any way you wanted. Eric was a cowboy. You know, um, I was a priest, and, and but it was flower power. It was we didn't just we didn't just turn up in England. We we walked into flower power as it was happening. And so, what do you do? You 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 go down to King's Road and you you buy caftans and you buy beads and so it's just the way we were. We were so naive, and even during the seventies, we were still naive. We just didn't understand the industry. We only understood that if we wrote a good song, it might be successful. And that's what you do. That's what you do. How do you know it's a good song? When you're writing as much as you were and you and your brothers are sitting in a room and you're, and you're working on something together, is there a commonality that flowed through your process where you kind of could trust that, that commonality, trust that that works? What is it? The trust comes from when, when all three of us are smiling. If, we, if we've got a song, and let's say, for instance, it's Islands in the Stream, when, when we 
we, when we discovered islands in the stream, we were grinning from ear to ear because we knew that this is strong, this is a good song, you know? And we didn't know anyone was going to do it. We just loved it. And we, we've always been that way. If it was, if it was, if it was, if it was a great song, we were all smiling. And we could walk out of the, that, the writing room knowing that we had something wonderful. And that's, that's how we worked. And sometimes it wasn't. Well, I was going to say, what was the selection process for you and the boys? Because, you know, say that, you know, you've written a song and I'm being, I'm playing hypothetical here. You may have all walked out smiling when you, when you, when you finished writing Massachusetts, but say hypothetically, you know, Morris didn't feel it. Would it still potentially see the light of day? Were there situations like that or was it unanimous only? No. Well, we never did anything unless it was unanimous. And, and that was something we had to live by, you know, whatever we did, we all had to want to do it. And, and we never had that kind of, well, two of us like this and one of us doesn't. Never happened. And we were so overjoyed even to have a hit record at any given time that we just couldn't wait for the next chance to do it again or to record something else again. And, you know, um, yeah, naivety was probably the key. The fact that we didn't mix or I didn't mix with the people in the industry very much at all. And because I was married for 50 years now, that's where I was, you know. I was, I was start beginning to settle down, and I met Linda, and my world changed, you know. And as soon as the concerts were over, you were you you were out because you had this you had this foundation, you know. Because you know there were heady times, obviously, in the seventies. To have success in the seventies, along is widely regarded as the time to have had success because all bets were off, right? And there was a lot of tragedy that eventually came from that because obviously, people, you know, the whole culture flew through too close to the sun and we lost good people and bad things happened. But for a time, it felt like this is why we're walking this planet at this point in our lives to be able to live free. Now, what was it like for you to have this foundation whilst you're going through this considerable amount of success? Well, don't, you're talking about millions of moments, you know? It, it wasn't just a lifetime. Everything's cool, you know? Um, every day was a little different. For, for all of us and, and for my family. And, and the 70s were, yeah, disappointing. There's no question that, that, that the industry had made up its mind to change and do something else. We never understood it, but, but we didn't like it. Who would, you know? And so we had to wait for our next chance. We've always done that. There was, there was the beginning of the 70s. We couldn't get arrested. Well, we could, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But we, we worked very hard not to. Um, so, yeah. And, and by 75, Armand Ertican, who you remember was the president of Atlantic Records, we were on that label. And he said, you know, if you guys don't kick it up, we're going to have to drop the group. And he didn't say that to us, but I know he said it to Robert Stigwood. And uh, you guys have got to kick it up. So I think that was the trigger. That was the trigger. And that was before Trafalgar? That was what kicked you into gear for, for Trafalgar? Well, Trafalgar wasn't one of my favorite albums. It just wasn't. And we made a number of albums that we should never have put out. There's no question. I think Life in a Tin Can was, was sort of crap. And, and, you know, you've got to be honest about it. It, it. We were not in good shape. We'd already reached that point where substances had got the better of us. And, and we couldn't communicate with each other properly. Um, people were spiking each other with strange drugs, and and that was the beginning of the seventies. So we didn't know where we were going. We never did. So uh, Jive Talking was the kickoff. That was the kickoff. Jive Talking was the one that saved the day. Well, I th yeah, I guess 
I guess that's the way to put it. And and everything that followed it, people have enjoyed. So you know, even even the Fever songs. You know, I I tell you a little story. My my I've told it before, but my daughter Ali and her friend Sloane went to went to dinner one night and and uh, staying alive came on the radio, and they enjoyed it. They had dinner, and on their way home, "You Should Be Dancing" came on the radio, and so they put the windows down and turned it up. And the weird thing was, everyone on the other side of the street started dancing. <laughs> and that's that's thirty years later, you know. And you go to a restaurant, and if they think they figure out that it's you, they put on they put on the fever album. Yeah, and how do you feel when that happens? Because I've spoken to so many musicians who struggle with that moment when they recognize through music. Well, you do if you're sitting, at, if you're having dinner, and 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 suddenly it all suddenly one night only comes on the television in the restaurant. <laughs> But you know that you know I wouldn't have it any other way. You know, you've written songs for people and they've made them hits in their own right. But ultimately, your songs get covered a lot as well. Um, it, it must be one of the real thrills to be able to hear the way people interpret your music. It is. It's always an enormous compliment, and uh, you can't think of it any other way. It's always flattering, and I can never come to terms with why someone would want to sing that particular song. Or, you know, because we're not judges. We can't judge ourselves and we can't judge it's really tough to judge others and and i love hearing every version you know uh, i love andy williams doing how can you mend a broken heart and johnny mathers doing how can you mend a broken heart so it's an enormous compliment to me what other ones do you love what else is on the playlist for you the ultimate covers of your own songs playlist? <laughs> I, well i'm i'm making a list um with Stephen, my eldest who really started all this and um we don't know what they are yet, and we don't know who the artists are yet, but I know that we're all into doing, doing a, a volume two if, if the record company's into it. At this point, or at least two weeks ago, I wouldn't have known whether that was possible. Now, now I think it is. Yeah, it totally is. But what about uh, the original covers, that are, the, the, the covers in existence right now, for instance, Al Green and things like that? Do you have ones that, that, that you really love? That's the one. <laughs> Yeah, that's the, uh, how can you mend a broken heart with Al Green? It's like seven minutes, but it's amazing, you know. So that and that was different, you know, because ours was more of a pop record, and Al Green's was more of a soul record, and and it just it just worked. I love that. I love that version. I thought the documentary was beautifully done. I wondered how that felt for you to be able to to dive so so meaningfully into your history and be able to capture something like that. Well, I I, I haven't watched it. I, I watched the first, I watched some of the first cut of it and I made comments and I have never really watched it since because I can't watch me and, and I can't watch all my brothers pass away. You know, it's just something I can't do, you know. But I've heard from everybody that it worked out wonderfully and, and Frank Marshall and Nigel Sinclair did a fantastic job. So, you know. I'm happy that it worked. I'm happy that people like it. I can't, I can't find that feeling to watch it. I just can't. The emotion is too much. You're a humble guy, aren't you? You're a humble person. Uh, um, no, I'm crazy. I'm a crazy person. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, we've all got one of those little e those egos that sit on our shoulder and sometimes tell us that, you know, we're wonderful. But that, that sort of drifted away now. You know, I honestly admit that I might have been like that over the years, but uh, 
not anymore, not anymore. I, you know, every, every time something wonderful works, it really works in, a, in such a special way. It's different now. We used to take for granted a hit record when we were younger, but not now, you know. Count your blessings, man. It's, that's how it feels to me. And you're probably going to say no because you're a gentleman, but I'll see if I can squeeze a little bit of honesty out of you around the gentleman, the, 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 the gentleman instincts. Are there songs that you wrote that other people sang that you kind of wish that you had sang yourself or you'd been able to hold on to, like real moments that others sat with? No, that was never me. Um, it was quite often Morris or Robin, but it was never me. Uh, once, once the song is in someone else's hands, that's it. You know. Well, what was the one then that what was the one then that your brothers really didn't want to let go of? A heartbreaker. Heartbreaker and Alice in the Dream. Uh, Robin always felt that that we should have recorded those songs, but you know we couldn't have got we wouldn't have got on the radio whether we recorded them or not. So that was the period where we just couldn't get airplay. So why why waste great songs? We we thought well let's well my feeling was let's write for other people. Let's show everybody that we're songwriters before we're anything else, and uh, that's what we did. Yeah, what a way to just write it out. I know, I know. I've got another one. You know, go figure that out. We just kept going. We didn't really think that, well, we can't get on the radio, so it's over. No. And this is the weirdest thing about the Bee Gees is that throughout all this incredible success that you had, it felt like other people were in control of your career. In a, in, you know, do you know what I mean when I say that? Like, no matter how many records you sold, how many stadiums you played, and how many millions and millions, hundreds of millions of lives you improved, other people got to decide whether or not it was your time to show up or not. True. Uh, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, we didn't pick our singles. Uh, Robert Stigwood picked our singles. And that was, often, that was often pretty crazy because if Morris and Robin weren't happy about Robin's, Robin, Robert's choice, then they would object to that. So sometimes Robert chose a, a song as a single that they didn't want to be a single. Um, IOIO is a perfect example of that. Uh, Jumbo was, uh, Robin didn't want to be the A-side. He wanted uh, Singer Sang His Song to be the A-side. Or maybe it was Lamplight. I don't know. But I know it was a lot to do with the, the Odessa album and that we were beginning to drift away from each other towards the end of that album. So, yeah, if there was something they were not happy about, then I, I would know pretty quick. But one thing's for sure, one thing's for sure, we never... We never argued in the studio, never. We might, we might have had an issue, but it was never an argument. You know, we, 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 all, we all always got on in the studio. It was, when, it was when they went home, they would air the, whatever their issues were, but they never aired them to me. So here I am now wondering what in, what in heaven's name was that all about? Um, if they had issues, why didn't they tell me, you know? Because I, 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 I went through 30 years of my life without knowing that they weren't happy, you know, because they, because they would pretend to be happy. And that was painful, you know, because at some point I realized that there was a lot more going on. They were twins, you know, so I'm the older guy and, and they're two guys. So they were sharing things and, inform and, and opinions between each other that I knew nothing about. And were you ever to even get to the, get to sort of any, in, any kind of clarity as to, as to what the issue was there? Oh, the issue was obvious. And um, they wanted, they wanted to have, uh, their families wanted to have more attention. Their families wanted their husband to sing more and for me to sing less. 
But you can't jump in the middle of another family. You can't jump in the middle of three brothers and, and start forming judgment, you know? Everything would have evolved in a, in a very positive light if they weren't, not the wives, I think the wives are wonderful, but the industry, there, there were people in the industry at that point that were whispering in each of our ears, saying, you don't need your brother, you don't need your brothers, you know? And, and that was very, very destabilizing for us because, because we did need each other. We always needed each other. It's just that other people, other people casted doubt on that, you know, especially when Robin and Morris. But, it, they, you know, I think the wives were, were pretty happy no matter what, and it would have evolved no matter what. But people in the, in the business. What was the most starstruck you've ever been in your life when meeting a fellow musician? Barbara, definitely one of them. Um, Barbara Streisand, um, and the Beatles, of course. I, I, I love George Harrison. Um, George Harrison is a, is, a li- is a living spirit, no matter where he is. What was one of your favorite memories of, of spending time with George as a living spirit? Be- being at his house, being at his house with Ravi Shankar and, and Pete Townsend. And Pete Townsend was the first rock star I ever met at the Speakeasy. Do you, do you have any memory of that? Yeah. There was there was a there was a secret club called the Speakeasy. I've read all about which, it. Yeah, yeah, which was underground, and only the Stones and the Beatles and people of that caliber were able to go in there. You had to have a membership card, but it was pretty dazzling because once you were in there, everybody you saw was a legend. And Pete Townsend came up to me because we were signed with the same company, and he said, "Oh, would you like to meet John Lennon?" You know, <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> and he pointed at John, and John was sitting with his back to me at a table with the fur waist fur thing on that they had for Sergeant Pepper. Yeah. And the hair teased up. And oh my God. Oh my God. And and Pete goes over and says, John, he said, I want, this is one of the new kids, Barry Gibb. I want, I want to introduce you to him. And I've told this before, but John John reached round with his hand backwards, never turned round, and just said, How are you? <laughs> and so you know ever since i thought well i i've met the back of john lennon <laughs> i hope one day to meet the front you know the ability to observe is one thing right we, we move through life and as you say millions of moments you collect them yeah. and but you move on you've yeah you've had this ability to be able to retain these things that leave a mark on you and, and, and some form or other turn them into songs. And at times, from what you're telling me, much, much later. You got the thing. You know, I suspect that other people, uh, people like Taylor Swift and other, I think that, that you gather stuff, you gather titles, you gather feelings. And, and uh, it's, it's, I've always had a pretty good memory. Maybe it's not that accurate because your memory never really is. But, but, uh, I, I tend to take life experiences and maybe that's a song, you know. One is definitely that. I, I, I just wanted to to ask you a couple of questions. One is, um, you know, it, all things going to a different plan, you know, in, 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 in another life, if, if, if life hadn't gotten in the way and you'd all still be here, do you think there was, there was room for the Bee Gees to, to find that chemistry and that joy in making music or at least performing again? Do you think it, would, it could have happened hypothetically? Yeah, hypothetically, of course. Uh, I always imagined us sitting around in our 80s and laughing, you know, about, about everything that had ever happened to us. You know, but what did I know? It was never, that was never going to happen. I didn't know that. 
But we always thought about that. Can you imagine when the pressure's off and we were just old men? You know, and it just wasn't, it wasn't going to happen that way. And that's life itself, you know. When does the light go off? You just don't know. You don't know. And so I've come to, a long time, come to terms with that. Yeah. With this album now, with this new, this new collection of, of Bee Gees classic songs that have been reinterpreted, and, and I wonder whether or not it's, it's stirred something in you to, to write again. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, but, you know, like other writers, I, I gather, you know, I, 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 I keep ideas and I never write them down because if I don't remember them, they're not any good. You know, if, if you write something down, then you'll incline towards something just because it's written down. And you have to keep things in your memory and in your, in your soul, in your, in your heart, you know. If it's any good, it'll come to life. And I've always felt that way about it. So, you know, I can't explain songwriting any more than any other songwriter can. You know, I love Burt Bacharach and Al David and, and the, the way they treated their songs and the way they, the six, four bars, the complications they put into their songs that weren't really complicated at all. And it's the simplicity and the sophistication mixed together, you know. It's a shame that you don't listen to your own records because aside from how great the songs are, the production and the whole energy you put into, into those, it's not just about the songs. You know, you could, yeah, you could write, the, you play these songs on piano and you just re- revisited these songs in a very reduced, beautiful way with Dave Cobb. But yeah. the production on these records throughout your career is out of control. Jive talking is out of oh. control. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I mean, it's, uh, you've got to thank Dave and you've got to thank the gang at, uh, at RCA Studios. And Jay Landers and, and John Merchant, who always works with me on my ears. And yeah, just a gang, like a, a team. And, and a, t- a team that was in- intimidated by each other. You know, I thought I was terrified when I'm finding out that everybody was intimidated to do this. But they all did it. And I never noticed that they were nervous as well, you know. But Dave Cobb told me that... The- they all felt that. It's nerve-wracking, Barry, because, um, you know, it's the opportunity to speak with you or let alone collaborate with you like, like you know, my peers and people, the songwriters and have done is, is, is yeah. it's rare. It's, I, can't, I can't pretend to understand it because I've always felt that, you know, there's always going to be a, a pushback to something. Listen, when we, in, when we were in our 40s, we couldn't get on the radio. So there's a time when everybody's interested and there's a time when they've moved on. You're never sure when that's going to happen. But it happens. It happens to everybody. And everybody you've talked to or interviewed will have a span, will have a lifespan of a certain kind. Nobody can do it forever, but I will. Wow, just what an incredible way to spend nearly an hour in the company of someone like that, Barry Gibb. It was still so much that I wanted to ask him. Perhaps I'll get the chance again, I hope so. Please leave a comment and rate to this conversation if you like it, you want to engage. I check it out all the time. Our next conversation coming up is Rivers Cuomo from Weezer, somebody I've met many, many times, but needless to say, this is the best one. So subscribe and don't miss it. Thanks again.